0: Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us about the deep longings of the heart in man. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org.
1: That desire that Solomon had in his heart is the same desire that Joshua had as he was taking over from Moses. And just like Solomon, Joshua was thinking, this is a really hard act to follow. I'm going I'm to fail. I'm going to drop the ball. And so God gave to Joshua the secret. What was the secret? Number one, don't stop talking about the word of God. You bring the conversation over to the Bible, over to the Word of God. The Bible, the Word of God, it's not in this compartment of your life while you have other Bible-less compartments of your life. It is all of your life. So he says, don't stop talking about it. Talking, one. Two, meditate. He says, meditate on the Word of God your constant thought think about what the bible says like a cow brings up the cud and rechews it and that's what you should do with the word of god as you meditate on it chew it again think about it again extract some new information some new nutrient for the soul extract that out of the word of god that's the term meditate chew its cud number 3 he was telling Joshua, do not be religious, do not be professional with the Word of God. Don't treat the Word of God like it's a job from 8 to 5 during the daytime, and then the nighttime is your own time. God says, when God says meditate therein day and night, he means day and night, day daytime is for your job. Nighttime is normally the time when you are off your job, when, you're, when you turn your job off. He says, but with the word of God, you don't do that because the word of God is for your daytime and your nighttime. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Do not treat this word professionally from which you take a break. You don't take a break from breathing If you did, you'd die. And so in the same way, he says, do not take a break from the word of God. And then number four, he says, don't just try to learn what the Bible says, but learn it so that you can obey it. Learn it so that you can incorporate it into your life. Be ye not hearers of the word only, but be ye doers of the word. Because the Bible says, if you are only A hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, you deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. That whole process is the process of adopting the word of God, like the father who will adopt the full-grown man. And that's what the king was required to do during the copying process as he was working on it. That's why whenever you think of the name Deuteronomy, second law, I want you to think about all the depth of the meaning of writing the second law. I want you to picture that king as he wrote meticulously those Hebrew characters with his pen and ink. And as he did, And think about all the responsibility he had. But as he did, he wasn't like, okay, let me get this down. But oh, no, no, no. As he did, he was writing those characters and praying, oh, God, as I write these characters on this piece of papyrus, please write these characters on my heart. I don't mean just to memorize it. I mean to have the meaning of it. I mean to be able to have it be my constant conversation, my constant thought, my constant occupation day and night. Help me, oh God, as I write these letters here, that I might adopt these to be my law, to be that process of adoption. That's what the word Deuteronomy should mean to us. Every time we say it, go back to that verse, go back to that scene, go back to that process of the king adopting the word to be his own. That's the meaning of the name Deuteronomy from that verse. Such a blessing. Now, as we have seen, the other names, Genesis, Bereshit, means beginning. The name in Hebrew for the book we are studying here in Exodus is the word comes from names, Shemot, from Shem, uh, meaning name and Shemot, names. Why? Because the first verse in, uh, in Exodus 1 says, and these are the names, these are the Shemot, of the children of Israel. So that's how it got its name. Now, the next book is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is Greek. Uh, it means uh, having to do from the priests. But in Hebrew, it's not called Leviticus. It's called Vayikra. Vayikra means called, and he called. Why is the book of Leviticus named, and he called Vayikra? Because this is the first Hebrew word in the book of Leviticus. And the Lord called unto Moses. And so... In the book of uh, Numbers, and of course, we understand what the word Numbers mean, but in Hebrew, that book is called Bumid Bar. Bumid Bar means in the desert, and that again comes from the first verse of Numbers, where it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness, or in, in the desert. Now, as we look at the book of Exodus, and we come to it, we want to first of all step back and look at an overview of the book, In other words, a breakdown of the book of Exodus from a bit of a distance. It's very instructive to us as believers, and that's why we're focused on it. Chapters one through six, we have Israel in Egypt. That's actually how the book starts off, and we're going to see that, but it's very interesting when it talks about that the Israel came into Egypt. That's what it says there, Israel came into Egypt. So it's Israel and Egypt. So the first six chapters in Exodus, we see what life was like for the people of God, Israel, in Egypt. What life was like. One statement comes out of those first six chapters, and that is, they needed redemption. The people needed redemption. So in this first section, we will see a people who have been enslaved by a tyrant... A tyrant who hated them, a tyrant who wanted to destroy them, a tyrant who wanted to kill them. Not the first time in the history of the Jewish people that they've been in that situation. But we look at this also, and we will, in the context of ourselves. The first chapters of our life, we find ourselves like an Israel in Egypt, in need of redemption, enslaved by a tyrant who wants to destroy us, just as the recent enslaver of the Jewish people in Nazi Germany, which, by the way, uh, Germany was not a primitive or a heathen society. We're not talking about cannibals when we talk about Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, because just as Egypt, as the enslaver of the Jewish people, was also not a heathen or a primitive society because Egypt like Germany also but Egypt at that time represented the best the world had to offer Egypt was the best in science Egypt was the best in medicine and astronomy and so was Nazi Germany in this regard as well Egypt was the best in art from the tomb paintings that we have even today and we understand those things. Egypt was the best in structural architecture. Even today, thousands of years later, we still are admiring the structural architecture of their pyramids. Egypt was the best in artistic architecture. Again, today we admire the Sphinx. Egypt was the best in literature. their hieroglyphics. Egypt had the best military. They were the strongest power. Egypt had the best government. Both Egypt and Nazi Germany had the awful title of being without God. Even though they were without God, they had great achievements, as we just mentioned. But those great achievements were really of no value. Because Egypt represented the best that the world had to offer. The very best. And what does the world have to offer? 1 John 2, 16-17 explains it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is a very comprehensive verse. Why? Because it says all that is in the world. That means that this is all the world has. It doesn't have anything more than this, but this is what it does have. It indicates that The world doesn't have God. God is not in the world. The world has religion, but they don't have God. Egypt had religion, but they didn't have God. Nazi Germany had religion, but they didn't have God. All that is in the world can only appeal to and is limited to only to satisfy the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life but what the world cannot satisfy is the deep longings of the heart and that is the longings that god has put in the heart what are the deep longings of the heart that god has put in there ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says this god he hath made everything beautiful in his time he hath set the King James says, the world in their heart. That word world is the word olam. He hath set olam. Olam, it means eternity. It means forever. In Genesis 3.22, when, the, when uh, Adam and Eve were in danger of, of eating from the tree of life, God said, no, send them out of the garden because they might eat of the tree of life and live forever. And Kai olam, live forever. Olam, it means forever. What has God said in man? God has set in our hearts a concern for eternity, a concern over the issue of eternity. God has set that in our hearts, and we have we have, as all men do, a concern to have a good eternity. We want to have a good forever. We must have a good eternity. We must have a good forever. And Egypt had a lot to offer, but Egypt could do nothing to satisfy the need for a good eternity, the need for a good forever. And today, the world has a lot to offer us, But the world can do nothing for us to satisfy our need for us to have a good eternity, a good forever. And the number one question that's on the hearts of minds of everyone when they're really alone, really honest with themselves, is the number one question that a rabbi friend of mine told me he was asked, he is asked in the cancer wards, on the hospice wards of the hospitals. And that's this question, rabbi, what will happen to me after I die? What's that question all about? What will happen to me after I die? That's a question which is, Rabbi, how do I have a good eternity? Rabbi, how do I have a good forever? Why do people ask that question? Because God has set olam, eternity, in the hearts of men, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11.
0: Tom, today you talked about the deep longings of the heart. Today people seem so restless and really in a desperate search and despair for the ultimate thrill that'll finally satisfy them. They're going from one thing to another thing and to extremes and sometimes even looking at the ultimate vacation or recreation just to find satisfaction or maybe from relationship to relationship that'll finally try to bring some satisfaction in their life. It just seems like the description of people today is not satisfied. Why is that?
1: Well, the reason that people seem so restless is because they are they're restless. The reason why they're in this desperate search for the ultimate thrill and is because they're, they're not satisfied. And there really is this deep longing in the heart. And so we have to turn to the Bible to find out why people are so restless and what is the answer for the deep longing in the heart. In John six thirty five, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am, Am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Two great words that describe our hearts and the hearts of every person. We have a hungering heart, we have a thirsty heart. We hunger, we thirst, and we look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. As you mentioned, we look for satisfaction in vacations, recreations, relationships, thrills. And those are all the wrong places because the Lord Jesus Christ said, Me, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, I'll make it so you never hunger. The life that you have now of hungering and thirsting, the Lord Jesus Christ could say, He's compassionate. He looks on and he says, I feel sorry for you. I see the despair that you're in. I see the torment from this gnawing, underlying hunger and thirst in your spirit. And he says, all you have to do is come to me. I will satisfy that hunger. I will satisfy that thirst to such a degree that you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. That's what he means in John 6, 35. You know, in in Psalm 91, 16, David, king of Israel, said, With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. What's the long life that he's referring to? Eternal life. When the Lord Jesus Christ is believed on, his promise is to give eternal life. That's what John 3.16 says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but shall have eternal life. Eternal life, that's pretty long. That's long life. And God says, when you know that you have life that never ends, you know what that brings to you? satisfaction. You're satisfied when you look at the grave and you think, that's going to be my end. Uh, The worms are just going to destroy me. And that's going to be, you're not satisfied at all. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're hungry for what? Thirsty for what? Eternal life. Long life that doesn't end. The olam life, he says, And I'll satisfy you with that, God says. And he says, I will show him my salvation. You know what that says in Hebrew? I will show him my Yeshua. I will show him my Jesus. God says, I will show him my Jesus. That will satisfy him. That will give him eternal life. In Isaiah 58 11, it says, And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. God says, I know you're living in a drought. In your own heart, there's a drought. Oh, you might have money. Oh, you might have houses. You might have a house in the Caribbean. You might have a house in Hawaii. You may have it made. You may be 35 and retired. You may be on a sailboat. But inside, you are poor, God says. Inside, you're in a drought. You're in a desert. And God knows it. And God says, let me satisfy your soul. You've tried to satisfy it with all the wrong things, wealth, possessions, accumulations. And God says, that will never satisfy you. He says, I will satisfy your soul in drought. And you'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Why? Why? because he is the fountain of living waters that's the lord jesus christ the one who makes it so we never thirst you know there's a great great uh, account of what happened what happened it was a great multitude as given in mark 8 it says the in those days the multitude being very great having nothing to eat so picture that they're very hungry Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat, nothing to eat, nothing to eat. It's be repeated twice. And if I send them away fasting to their own house, they'll faint by the way, for diverse of them come from afar. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? What a question that is. That's a question for our souls. From where can a man truly be satisfied in his inner being here in the wilderness of this world? You can't find anything in this world apart from God to satisfy your souls. This world is like a wilderness, everything it has to offer, all of its tinsel, all of of its glitz, all of its flash is temporary. The word is like a vapor. It's a vapor. Vanity it is. And so it's the question that applies to us. From whence can a man satisfy this man with bread here in the wilderness? Verse 6, and he said unto them, how many loaves have ye? and they said seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set before the people, and they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and he commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. A miracle! Why? because they brought the small that they had the small little pieces of fish and the low the few number of loaves that they had but they brought it to him they brought it to the master they submitted to him what's that a picture of that's a picture of us bringing our broken lives our worn out spirits our our our, our beings that have just been churned out and spit onto the side of the road in the gutter of life. And we gather ourselves up like those pathetic small number of loaves and small number of fishes. And we bring to the Lord and we say, we're sorry, Lord, this is all we have. And then he does his miracle. He says, you brought yourself to me. You obeyed my gospel. You said that you received me as your Lord and Savior. You said you came to me just as you were poor, wretched, blind, naked, as the description is at the end of of, uh, Revelation chapter 3. He says, now you've done the right thing. Now rest. Now rest, and now watch. And as the people were commanded to sit down just sit down on the ground is what he told the people. The people could have said, Oh, we gotta each of us gonna go and we're gonna go run, we're gonna pool our money, we're gonna go buy from this one and that one, and God says, just sit down. Sit down on the ground. Don't do any work. Just sit down. You've brought yourself to me. You've put yourself under my lordship. You've submitted yourself to my to my word. Now sit down, he says in verse 6, and when they sat down, then he took the small that they had, which were seven loaves, seven loaves, and he gave thanks. And what happened? They multiplied, and there was enough, and it satisfied them. You know why we don't see satisfaction in our lives? Is because we've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, humbled ourselves, put ourselves under his command come to him and say, Captain Lord Jesus, your private reporting here to you, what will you have me to do? That's what Paul said. What wilt thou have me to do? And as he did, then great things happened. That's what the Lord wants. He wants us to give ourselves to him, to wholly submit ourselves to him, holding nothing back, surrendering all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And when we do that, then he takes our lives and he satisfies them. And as as the psalmist said, God satisfies us by showing us his salvation. He reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful, friends. You know, if you were to look today at the Jewish people frantically pursuing everything under the sun and winning Nobel Prizes while they're at it, by the way, and yet there just is this dissatisfaction, a restlessness in the spirit, never enough. Why? Why? Because they've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the satisfier of the soul. The the one, only one who can fill the hungry soul, who can give drink to the thirsty soul. Only he can do it. And if you'd like to be a part of bringing the Lord Jesus Christ, the only satisfier to their souls so that they can be happy in him, We have a job for you in Southern California, Los Angeles, Riverside, Orange County, San Diego, carrying the gospel to them. Call us at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow as we continue with our Exodus series. Now, as you heard Tom Cantor speak about today... Israel Restoration Ministries is looking for full-time couriers to take the gospel to the Jewish people in Southern California. If you're interested in going door-to-door to reach lost Jewish people, please call us today at 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. You can also call us at that same number from Tom Cantor Resources, Materials, and Videos, or go to IsraelRestoration.org or friendshipwithgod.org. Join us again tomorrow at the same time.